finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we read things and talk about them. And we read two stories this week, and I think we're going to start with the one that you, Andrea, not you, the audience, but Andrea, picked. Well, my choice for this episode was St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves by Karen Russell. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast, this short story comes from her first collection of short stories, which is also called St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves. And I mentioned her first novel, which was Swamplandia from 2011, which is a really great novel that I recommend to anyone who's looking for sort of a new and modern style of writing she has a great take on sort of the concept of transitioning and coming to coming of age and um what it's like to fit into society or not to fit into society yeah and if you want to read about amusement parks and you've already exhausted george saunders entire oeuvre it's a pretty good substitute i think we to get that hit we we talk a lot about amusement parks, but her take on American culture is very interesting. It's a lot like George Saunders, so that's true. But we do talk a lot about amusement parks and literature on our podcast. Yeah, well, they're a ripe, they're ripe for writing about. I don't know where I was going with that. So this short story was written in two thousand seven from the book that we mentioned, and it's about a group of feral human girls who have werewolf parents who are sent to, it kind of sounds a little ridiculous, but it's a really good story. They're sent to a reform school where they're supposed to learn how to be human and to fit into human society because they've spent their early childhood being raised like wolves in some kind of, um, almost seems like an Appalachian culture, and they come out of the forest and they're sent to this school. Why this is such a thing that they have so many reform schools for girls that are raised by, and boys who were raised by werewolf parents. She never really gets into that, but this is what happens. The boys are called man boys for some reason, but the girls, like, it's, the boys school is the something school for man boys raised by wolves. For some reason, the girls one is just called, they're just called girls. I like this, yeah, that's true. I like this story because it's the story of these girls, the the narrator, you never even really learn her name, but they have... Claudette. Claudette. They have um, wolf names, and then they get, at some point in their development, they get human names. Yeah. Their wolf names are like, Meow and grr and shit like that. Yeah. But I like how... I also like there was... In the beginning of the story, and in this se- between the sections, there's quotes from this imaginary manual that the sisters are supposed to use to help the girls transition from being wolf girls to being human girls. And I thought that was a nice touch. Okay. I wanted to, I want to ask you a question. We have over the course of the, this is the third, right? This is the third story you picked. Yes. We've delved a lot into your childhood and your relationship with your family and your relationship with religion. How much of your affection for this story comes from your experience going to Catholic school as a kid? Well, I thought the first time I read it, I thought this is like Catholic school and this is about the girl culture in 
some kind of like structured environment like a Catholic school. And then, so then when I read it the first time, when I read the, the collection, I thought that. But when I read it the second time for the podcast, I kind of felt like it was more about sort of cultural disenfranchised, kind of feeling like coming from one culture and being forced into another culture or how you transition from a sort of insular society into a broader society. So I felt like the second time I read it was less like it was about mean girls and cliques in a Catholic school. This is the first time I've read this story. I've read other stuff by Karen Russell. I read her other uh, short story collection, Vampires in the Lemon Grove. And for me reading this, the thing that I thought of immediately was, you know, this is an assimilation narrative. And the the real life equivalent that I thought of the whole time I was reading it was the um, the Canadian Indian residential school system. That's exact. I had a similar thought, and we were talking about this before the podcast. It reminded me a lot of what Louise Erdrich writes about when she writes about the French Canadian schools, the government-run Indian schools, the the experience of the Ojibwe girls who are sent to these boarding schools, and the kind of experiences they have taking their Native American culture and then trying to fitted into the framework of what is socially acceptable by these government schools. Yeah, it's definitely a portrait of how, you know, the predominant culture uses schools as a tool to stamp out the elements of the other cultures in their society that they don't like. I mean, it can also sort of be taken, I think, more broadly as a portrait of how schools in general kind of act as this equalizing force that pushes everybody into like a roughly the same space. They're they're where we learn our culture, and since they're all run by the same governmental entity, they teach us all the same culture and kind of sand off a lot of the rough edges. You know, in our capitalist society, I think there's a lot of value is placed on this idea that we can be kind of formed into these universal widgets that can kind of be slotted into any sort of role that we need to to make money and schools act as a way to turn us into that not to get you know i think you're right i think this story is a lot about the socialization of children because claudette who's sort of in the middle she's in the middle of the pack when she's a wolf girl and she's also in the middle of the like social standing when it when she's in the reform school and they're all concerned about one of the girls whose name is Mirabella, who is very feral and is not transitioning into acting like a human girl. And then in the beginning, they like this girl, Jeanette, mm-hmm. who is very successful and easily adapts to the culture and the school and starts moving up into the different stages more quickly. But towards the end of the story, they start to turn on her because they don't like the way that she's acting. She's acting too human and they don't really, and she fits in too well. So it kind of causes like a lot of conflict. Yeah, I think one of the most insightful things that the story brings up is this idea that Claudette learns where schools are sort of set up explicitly or otherwise to disincentivize you from standing out or being exceptional in any specific direction where it's like if you want to succeed at a school both socially and academically the best thing you can do is to sand off your rough edges and 
slide into the middle as much as you can. And in the process, you know, it kind of <laughs> destroys or damages your individual personality and sands away your, you know, culture. I thought it was interesting because, like, we I talked a lot about, like, socialization and the sort of construct of, like, suburban children's culture sure. and it kind of felt like this was sort of a take on that it was about like not about children about specifically the culture but how they're being trained to act more like adults but mm -hmm. even within the story the adults are sort of very vague like there's only two types of adults there's the sisters that are running this school or there's the feral werewolf parents who live in a cave and at the end of the story, when she goes back home and she says, I've just told my first human lie. And she says, I'm home. So then you start to realize that like now she she's more aware of the separation between what is socially acceptable in her childhood and what is supposed to be socially acceptable in her adulthood. Yeah, I mean, you can see it sort of all the time. I remember, you know, growing up in the suburbs and being friends with um you know, a lot of people who, a lot of kids who were second generation immigrants and the sort of disconnect between the way they acted and the cultural values they had and the values that their parents had were, were kind of immense. And, you know, I never really thought about it too hard until later in my life, but you, you can see, see it even just simply in like, you know, the idea that like, the kid doesn't have an has a you know an American accent, and their parent has a thick, you know, accent from wherever they're from, and I never really thought about how like heartbreaking that disconnect must be because you do you push the kid to socialize and assimilate into the the dominant culture as a way to make things better and easier for them, and in the process you damage your connection to them to the point where. She's sort of this alien visitor when she comes home to the cave, which is probably an experience that a lot of immigrant children have had. Yeah, and I, I, I was never quite sure from the way that it, they had... It's never really clear how they arrive at the school. If the parents had surrendered them to give them a better life as humans, or if the government or the agency that runs the school found them and took them to the school. She, the narrator, says, and I don't know how reliable that she is, not in that she's lying, but that she might not even know. She frames it that the parents gave them up willingly so they could have a better life and wouldn't have to live like them. And the nurses definitely frame it like that because, not the nurses, the nuns definitely frame it like that because a lot of their punishment technique in classic Catholic school style involves guilting them. And specifically guilting them through being like, do you want your parents' effort to be wasted? Do you want to have failed them right, in this right. thing that they want for you? Whether or not that's true, you know, I don't know. I think if you read Swaplandia and you read these short stories, one of the themes that I see running through Karen Russell's work is this concept of children who are pretty much raising themselves. And it's very clear in Swaplandia, the sisters who have this sort of unreliable father and and missing mother that they rely on sort of raising each other and i feel like these wolf children who were feral for such a long time when they're in the contract where they're in a more stable 
environment, there are also still must, much of the work to transition into being human, they have to do themselves. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the, the sisters who are running the school aren't really helping them. And I feel like that's a, like a common theme about, and it's the same thing with like living in the suburbs or even like the dungeon master, these children are on their own to try to figure out how things are working. But I think like the overall impression of society, especially now with like helicopter parents and things like that, is that these parents are really involved in their children's lives and they're really helping them. But these kinds of works are saying like, you may think that you're involved and you may think that you're helping, but the reality is that this is the work that they do themselves. They have to grow themselves. Sure. Yeah. I think, um, one of the things I was thinking about a lot about the actual schooling in this story is at no point there, this school is not focused on like learning at all. There's no, there's nothing in it. There's no lessons that revolve around the acquisition of knowledge. The closest they get is stuff that's about memorization it's entirely about this cultural enforcement. Right. Because they have to learn how to dance and they have to learn to get a library card and they have to learn like socially accepted skills that the sisters decide are important for them to learn. I mean, a big thing about like getting their human names and wearing shoes. I mean, these are things that like you wouldn't normally learn in a school. Like you should have learned from your parents. Sure. Yeah. But it's also like even she learns how to read, but it's presented as like mostly she kind of teaches herself how to read. Right. It's not even a thing the school is especially worried about so much as it's worried about turning them into, you know, presentable ladies, which I think is, you know, obviously an exaggeration of the way schools actually operate in the world. I thought that though this book had a lot of humor, this not this short story had a lot of humorous parts. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I like the part where the like the nuns were sort of chastising the feral girl telling her that if she doesn't become more human she's going to end up being like a wolf lady who has to wear culottes and i just thought that was really funny and specific like punishment would be you'd have to wear culottes and be a wolf woman the weirdest thing about that their vision of like failure it's their vision of failure they present them is also not the one that we get in reality because it's like mirabella fails at being learning to be a human girl and is banished back to the woods but when the nuns present them with a vision of failure it's this like half wolf person that still exists in normal society like has a job as a bank teller but it's just like (laughs) ostracized and eats raw meat which is like honestly probably the reality they're all heading towards anyway yeah and i mean truthfully it doesn't really sound that awful no it just yeah but that's the thing like this it sets up this reality where the worst thing you can be is ostracized. Yeah. Which, which is why it's, it's they're incentivized to be middle of the pack. Because if you're too far in one either direction, you stand out and you become a target. Yeah. I like how, I mean, to bring it back to George Saunders, I like how she tells a story and she brings in either elements of the supernatural or some type of magical realism or some kind of like fable-like component so that the story feels almost like unworldly like it just kind of feels like there like there's a world that exists where there are enough children that are born of werewolf parents that they have to have a special reform school for them yeah two of them two yes at least two 
I, I thought the part where the feral boys and girls get together to have a dance and the main component is like how like successful you are doing the Sausalito, which yeah. is a very strange, like, like you said, a way to judge like how successful you are at being human involves being able to do this weird dance and which like some of the girls are not successful at at all. Yeah. And we also see in that the way that they're sort of taught this performative socialization where it's like she makes small talk with the wolf boy and it's just like a script they're both reading off of that's like wonderful weather we've been having and she's like well actually the weather is really bad right but i don't know how to do that so i'm just we just fall into these scripted interactions that are supposed to stand in for real social interactions right because she hasn't gotten to the component in the textbook where they talk about bad weather She's only gotten to the part where they talk about good weather, so she doesn't really know how to to deal with that. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting. I like this story a lot, which is why I selected it. And I like Karen Russell. I think she is a good writer, and I think that, you know, we'll be seeing more interesting things coming from her. But my favorite short story that she wrote, which is, I think, in Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Yeah. Bo- that's the one you're, I'm thinking of. Born yes. at the End of Our Term, which is... The story revolves around the former presidents of the United States that when they die, they're reincarnated as horses and they all live in the same stable. And it's kind of weird and sad and kind of like, it's very provocative, this whole story, because you think it's kind of, you're like, this is too weird to be a meaningful story. But as you read it, you kind of, you get the gist of it and it's kind of complex and heartbreaking in a way. Yeah, that's a really good story. My favorite short story by her is probably Vampires in the Lemon Grove, which I just think is like a real—it's a really thoughtful take on the idea of a vampire and like prolonged existence, and it's just sort of this really intimate portrait of the like quiet entropy that consumes human relationships when you're not looking. Yeah, I I think that's a and her style is very low key, so that I think that's a good way to describe. Her work, you know, they're sort of small vignettes, but they're sort of emotionally enriching. Mm-hmm. I would highly recommend Swaplandia for anyone who wants to read sort of a, a very modern take. It's about an amusement park in Florida and two sisters, but there are, there is an element almost of like magical realism to, to the story. The sister falls in love with a ghost and there's... You know, kind of weird things happening, but ultimately it's a story of like coming of age and sort of dealing with childhood trauma and, you know, family and siblings. It's a very complicated story. Yeah. yeah I don't think yeah. I sold it. No, it's real good. Like, <laughs> I don't, I'm not exactly sure how to sell it. It's real good though. I first became aware of it because there was that whole thing with the Pulitzer. Where the two books that were, like, up for it were Swamplandia and The Pale King by David Foster Wallace. And they ended up deciding not to award one that year. So neither of them ended up winning. I think clearly she should have won. Yeah, she absolutely should have. Uh, It's a little... I I think, like, it was definitely a... Not political, but it was, like, a tactical decision. Where it's, like... If they don't give it to David Foster Wallace, people will lose their shit. His shittiest segment of his like fans and admirers will go berserk. 
But also, if we do give it to him, you know, they're going to catch a bunch of shit for just giving the award to his him because he died. Because I don't think it's controversial at this point to say that, like, The Pale King is, like, a lesser it work of his. It definitely is. But I feel like, I mean, this was right after his suicide. Yeah. And it was clearly the last chance to award him with an award. Sure. Which I feel like he could have could have won for maybe infinite jest in the, I mean that sort of is his his big novel his big important work and I feel like yeah. they were kind of deciding if they should give him sort of give him you know the John Updike treatment and give him an award for the body of work but I think you're right but it was also at the time where there was a lot of controversy because there I mean it was the whole thing with the Hugo and the sick puppies and the and the sort of beginning of social media influence on these types of awards. And it was a lot of pressure, like you said, to give it to David Foster Wallace. But I think it sort of diminished the quality and value of Swamplandia because it was caught in that controversy. So it was either like, give it to David Foster Wallace or give it to Karen Russell. She would get the booby prize because they didn't want to give it to the Pale King. And I felt like both of them... I mean, there are parts in The Pale King that are really brilliant. And I and I read it and I kind of, what I understand about the novel was it was 90% complete. Mm-hmm. So the beginning of the novel is very strong. And you can tell because it's been worked by Wallace. And it's kind of, um, it's more fully formed. And the whole part about the accountants and things like that is classic. You know, yeah. of his work. And I feel like it sort of falls apart towards the end because obviously it wasn't finished. Sure. But it's kind of like a meticulous writer like him, for him not to finish, I don't think he would have ever finished that novel, if, even if he chose to continue. This is going to sound pretentious. I feel like it's kind of unfinished on purpose that he's sort of making a statement by, like a meta statement by having the novel be unfinished. And I don't know if that's me working backwards to justify something but like i feel like that's kind of the point which sadly makes the work suffer also it's i think it's kind of unfair that we're talking so much about the pale king in this segment that's supposed to be about karen Russell. well here we're, we're doing we exactly it <laughs> yes we're doing exactly what the bolter committee did to her so i mean read swampland it it's it's worth the read. That's my take on it. Yeah. One of the other things I wanted to, to touch on with this is like her actual writing, like word to word writing, her use of language, I think is really great and genuinely beautiful. Even when she's describing something repellent, like people pissing all over a room, which I found to be exceptionally gross, but whatever, which is also kind of funny. So her, her stuff is so well written that it like makes me jealous and insecure Well, I think, whenever I read her stuff because I'm just like, oh, this is so good. I'm never going to be this fucking good. Well, one of the things that people say about George Saunders is that he's a writer's writer. Yeah. So people who are writers appreciate the craft of his writing. And I feel like she's the same way. That, she's, that her technical skill of writing is so refined I mean, it makes an interesting story and she has an interesting modern take on things, but I think the quality 
of work it's meticulous and i think it really shows in her use of language like you said and her her depiction of repellent things in a beautiful way that's a huge trend in modern literature like you know beautifying the repellent so i feel like she does it in a a technically crafted way that this i mean you don't feel like she's trying to make something ugly pretty you just feel like it flows like kind of seamlessly into the story and it enriches the story yeah absolutely i mean when i think of like ugly things and ugly things in writing and i think about like naked lunch and how like gross and that kind of grossed me out and continues to gross me out this day that whole scene where he's talking about injecting into the open sore in his leg and i can't even think about it now but i mean there's lots of literature that like repulsed me in such a way that it stayed with me with for like a very wrong reason well i mean i think that's the right reason naked lunch is trying to be repulsive on purpose like it wants to gross you out and disturb you and that's all it's going for and it's not trying to like you you know some some stuff tries to find the beauty in in gross stuff like you were saying like beautifying the repellent Whereas I think the point of Naked Lunch is nothing is beautiful. It's all gross. Be grossed out with me. Here's a story about an FBI agent who turns into a leech. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, compared to like some people say that like metamorphosis is gross and repellent and, you know, that whole description of when he becomes the insect and, you know, that's kind of, but I feel like. That's pretty tame. Yeah. Naked Lunch is a hundred times worse than that. What I'm just saying is like a person who's read a lot of Clive Barker and I read a lot of stuff that has what you might call body horror in it. The description of metamorphosis is like nothing. Yeah. It could have been way worse. Well, the Hellraiser, the movie is one of the most disturbing movies in my mind that I have ever seen. And I have watched that only one time and I saw it at the movies and I cannot bring myself to watch that movie again. Oh, I love that movie. I've seen that movie a bunch of times. (laughs) It's just something about the visuals in that movie and that, like, dirty mattress. I I just, I mean, I love Club Barker and his writing, and I will read any weird thing that he creates. But for some reason, I cannot go back and watch that movie. Yeah, I think, like, obviously, okay, we're, again, not talking about Cameron Russell. But obviously, like, the image that sticks with people from Hellraiser is Pinhead. But I think to me, the, the image that stuck with me the most, and the one that is the most disturbing, is the, like, Frank, the, who is, like, reduced to this, like, half-alive, skinless exactly. gremlin in the, you know, in the attic. That shit's genuinely disturbing in a way that, like, Pinhead's just cool. Yeah, I Like, mean, I he's can, dope. I can look at Pinhead. Yeah. And I have no problem with that. But it's just something about that whole story that scene and you know that how sort of having to be revived and brought back to life and it's just just something about it just i can't i can't process it and i I don't know (laughs) if i ever will be able to huh i get that i mean you know that's fine if you don't want to if you can't bring yourself to watch it you don't have to watch it no one's ever i don't think anyone's ever gonna make you watch hellraiser well, that's good. That's good. To, that's a relief. So. Do we have anything else to say about St. Lucy's? <laughs> no. I, one of the things I, I, I don't know if it's like interesting. If hmm, 
I'm not sure how to say this. I don't know if it's a thing that I find interesting or if it's possibly a weakness with the story. But there's really not a lot or much of anything in it about the idea of, like, code switching. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Like, the... And maybe that's a thing that would have, would be in the story if it was about older wolf girls. But it feels like their wolfishness is, like, completely obliterated. Whereas you would think that in a story like this, they would group together and form, you know, little secret enclaves where they would do wolfish things together. And I think, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it is a strength with this story because it's a portrait of how, you know, one of the tools that this school uses is it isolates them and it breaks apart the pact. Like there's a point where Claudette says like, oh, I can't tell what the whole pact is thinking anymore. And it sets them in competition with each other, which we see sort of exemplified through her relationship with Jeanette and prevents them from forming any sort of subculture, which is especially heartbreaking. Like the ending is very sad where she comes home and she's like, I lied, I'm home. And it's just like, oof. but now in retrospect, thinking about the idea that like these girls have no connection with each other, they're, they're not going to be able to like support each other when they come out of the school. That's even more sad to me. But I think that's kind of very relatable. Cause I mean, if you think about like, people's experiences like the first time that they're the first time they're away from their families and they realize what they consider to be normal in their family construct is either different or weird like when you go away to college you know and you come back and you're like in some way transformed and different from your family like the first time you realize like when you go to middle school and you realize that like not everybody's family does what your family does or what you consider to be normal in your family, someone might consider to be weird in their family. Or you have the same experience where you see other people's family culture and you think that's really weird. They do these kind of strange things that we don't do. Yeah, or you go to college and your friends from New York make fun of you for saying water. Right, exactly. So, but I think that's sort of, that's well well done in a story like this yeah okay do we want to move on to the next story yeah this next story is a lot to unpack <laughs> so this is a story i picked uh it should be obvious if you read both of them and you didn't know who picked which one i would think that well we've only done a couple episodes of this podcast but over time i think you'll be able to pick out specifically ah this is i'm start over i'm start this section completely over yeah this is the one i picked it's Tolone, i think I'm still not super clear on how to pronounce things with umlauts. It's Talon Ukbar Orbis Tertius by Jorge Luis Borges. And whew, summarizing this is a bit of a feat. It's very not a traditional narrative story. So So let's wait, let's go back to the beginning. This the the story that we read was from nineteen sixty-two. It's the translation, but the original story was written in nineteen forty. Yeah. So I think that's important to know the date of when this story was written because it sort of puts the framework of the style of writing that he's using. It's also important in the narrative because the end of the story takes place in 1947, right. seven years in the future from when it was written. Right. So if you read the original in 1940, it's more current. But if you read the translation in 1962 or later, it definitely has a more speculative fiction, sci-fi feeling to it. Yeah, we'll get into this in the story, but the 
passage of time recontextualizes the story because reading it in 1940 at the end we're presented with a vision of the future and then reading it now at the end we're presented with a vision of an alternate past exactly and i think like that's the beauty of this sort of it's almost like a it's like a cube like every time you turn it there's something new and complex and i think that's a lot of people are put off by borges because they think he's too hard to understand, too complicated, too avant-garde, even today, too avant-garde, even when you're thinking about like metafiction novelists. But I think if you spend the time to unpack what's in this story and spend some time reading his works and learning a little bit about his philosophical, you know, his cultural ideas and things like that, it's a very good story. Yeah, this is uh, one of my favorite stories, like, ever. I love this story so much. Uh, so what it's actually about is the narrator, who is Borges himself. It's very meta right there. Like, I actually didn't realize that until, like, the second time I had read this. Because I didn't know that, um, what is his name? His friend, Cesare's, is a real dude that he worked with. Well, it's interesting. In such a short story, he makes reference to so many people and so many things. Yeah, it's very dense with references. So, it's about Borges stumbling upon this pirated encyclopedia that contains a reference to a seemingly non-existent country called Ukbar. And Ukbar's literature, none of it is set in the real, the real enormous 30-foot high quotation marks world and are in fact set in an invented country or planet called Talone or another one called like Lemonis or something. I, I forget. That one doesn't really come up very much in the story. And then as the story in time progresses, he starts to find more evidence, more, you know, written evidence of these invented worlds, and he specifically finds a volume of an encyclopedia of Talone, the fictional setting of all the Ukbarian literature and then more and more volumes of that encyclopedia start to appear and people start to become obsessed with this fictional world and then there's a letter that is found <laughs> from an atheistic American billionaire that reveals that there was an ancient not ancient but there was a secret society, secret society called Orbis Tertius that was committed to the creation of this fictional country, Ukbar, and it existed, you know, into the modern day, and Ezra Buckley, that's the, the millionaire, became, a, was like a, inducted into the society, and he decided that they should create their whole own world, and it should have nothing to do with that imposter Christ, and they invent Talone, and it's this, like, massive literary, historical, philosophical hoax that then becomes so popular that it starts to supplant our own reality and history. And here's the twist. The philosophy of the imaginary world of Talone is their subjective realist. So they don't believe that anything exists except for the mind. Anything material does not exist. So it's a made-up world that has a philosophy that says we're not real. They're ide subjective idealists. Right. Yeah, so their whole thing is things only exist in so much as we perceive them. They're right. entirely based on the philosophy of George 
Berkeley, who is then also a part of Orbis Tertius. And a lot of the story is this exploration of Talon's idealist philosophy and how that affects their culture and their world. And it becomes a way for Borges to play around with these bizarre philosophical ideas. Because by creating this world that, you know, runs on this subjective idealist philosophy, they... He also creates a world where there are no nouns. There are there are two languages we learn about in Talone. Neither of them have nouns. One's based entirely on verbs. So instead of saying, like, look, there's a car, you would say, you know, over yonder, it card. And then the other one is based entirely on, like, adjectives. So instead of, like, saying, look, a car, you would be, you would just, like, describe the car. You'd be like, red, metal, moving, wheeled... Well, it kind of, there's two things that I want to say about that. One, it's a very uh, scholarly, writery kind of world to create where everything is based on language. And then second, this story has footnotes. Yep. And in one of the footnotes, my favorite part is when he says, if you quote Shakespeare, then you are Shakespeare. Yeah. And, and that, I like that a lot. I that think is... that's a great, a great concept in this world that Borges is creating. Yeah, that's an idea that comes up a bunch in Borges' work. One of the other stories in Ficciones is about a guy who is translating Don Quixote, but he's translating it so faithfully that he becomes Cervantes. And it's like, even though his translation is a word-for-word duplication of the original work, because he is writing it in a different context, it becomes a new work and it becomes his uh, which is interesting because that's another thing that comes up in Talon is they have this tradition of literary criticism where they just kind of arbitrarily decide two w- desperate works are by the same author and then compare and contrast them to sort of construct this imaginary author that would have worked on both of those works and what they would be like and what the shared themes between those works are. I think it kind of it really fits into the whole metafiction concept of an a piece of writing is a manifestation or it's an expression. It's not necessarily a book. So, I mean, they kind of get into that high concept. One of the things I thought was interesting about the story is as it goes on, some artifacts that are identified as being from Talone actually start to exist in the real world. Mm -hmm. So then at that point, my question to you would have been, is this a created world or one that is real but doesn't exist because the philosophy that they believe in makes them not exist. Uh, both are entirely possible. The other idea is that, like... So, the Did world of Talon runs on the subject of idealism. So things only exist if we perceive them. But fiction is essentially... Fiction, or art in general, is essentially a cheat that allows us to perceive things that do not exist. But then, if we're following that philosophy and we're perceiving a thing, even if it doesn't exist, that means it does exist. So, essentially... It's both. It's irrelevant which one it is or isn't. People are perceiving Talone. So Talone exists whether or not it existed before. I think one of the most obvious influences on this story is the Rosicrucian manifestos, which he references earlier in the story when bringing up Johann Andreas, who was one of the guys who wrote the three foundational Rosicrucian manifestos. And the Rosicrucians... You know, that was essentially, probably, a hoax. 
uh, Johann Andreas identifies it as such in later writings, where these guys wrote these manifestos about this ancient esoteric order, but they were just sort of making it up. But then people defictionalized it and founded their own orders. But also, there are examples predating the Rosicrucian manifestos of occurrences of the rosy cross symbol. And what this story kind of brings up as a question is like, did those exist before the manifestos or did the manifestos cause those artifacts to manifest in the world? Were Are the Rosicrucians really a hoax or did by creating the hoax, did they birth Father Rosicrucis into the world? Well, that's what, I mean, that that's one of the things that's hard to understand about the story. But if you put the story in the construct of a science fiction story. Sure. It kind of gives the impression that there might be either some type of parallel world or alternative world. And at some point, there's sort of a mixing of the both of those worlds. But I feel like because Borges is sort of like a philosophical realist, and he uses his stories to sort of figure out and work through philosophical questions that he's dealing with it's hard to tell if he's saying that this is a science fiction story or this is some kind of speculative story well here's the thing it's a joke the beginning of the story he has he says that Césaire's proposed this idea to him essentially of an unreliable narrator a narrator gives an account of a story and exaggerates or excludes some details so that Almost no one would be able to tell what the actual events are. The end of the story, he says that he's going to work on this translation of, uh, what is it, Burial Urn? This, uh, yeah, he's, he's going to work on a translation of... Brown's. Uh, yeah, of Brown's Urn bur- Burial. What this story, which brings up this idea that the story is basically just a long, shaggy dog joke about how he decided to translate this work. But it's kind of like... It's a very elaborate and complicated setup for this sort of really cerebral joke that not a lot of people are going to get. Yeah, but it's It's, a really good joke. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Like, that's my favorite. The the Shaggy Dog story is my favorite kind of joke. But yeah. I mean, also, you you don't need to view it as that. You can go back and you can, you know, pick apart all the philosophy and world building and whatnot but i feel like it in in essence to me the story is a mystery mm-hmm. it's sort of like a literary mystery like i mean you have an encyclopedia with an entry and then he's looking at different editions and each edition doesn't have the story of Ukbar. so he starts to try to figure out and then he you know he finds a text in a bar and it's the volume that's missing and then he's he starts doing all this research and then he meets people that are interacting with the world and bringing artifacts back. It all sort of sounds like almost like a like an episode of Fringe or something or like something like someone read that and was like, hey, let's work this into like Fringe where there's this parallel universe and everybody is connected. But the weird thing about this parallel universe is, is that it exists, but it claims it doesn't exist because its philosophy is we don't exist. So it's kind of it kind of becomes a sort of spiral that's going on 
which I think is interesting. But I think it says a lot about Borges and his influence on metafiction and modern writing. Because, like, if you look at someone like Dom DeLillo, you'll see, like, some direct components of the philosophy of Borgia being used in his works. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to get back to the, the philosophy part, though, with the, the idealism. He creates this world that runs on Berkeley's subjective idealism. But the big break he makes from Berkeley's idealism is there's no concept of God. It's this atheistic idealism. Because Berkeley's answer to the question of, like, if a tree falls in the forest is and no one's around to hear it, doesn't make a sound, is, yes, because God hears it. And God hears everything and perceives everything all at once, so everything always exists. But the Talonians, or Talonites, don't believe in God. But... They end up working backwards because of the inherent contradictions of this philosophy. They end up working backwards and inventing a concept of God. Yeah, but also they don't use nouns, so how would they say the word tree? So. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> but I feel like that's the perfect example of like this whole concept of Borges being a philosophical realist. Because you can see, to understand this story... I don't know what that means. What do you mean a philosophical realist? They're, they write stories where they're working through philosophical issues that they're trying to understand. Okay, sure. So, so this whole story is a construct of Borges is, like you said, he's trying to figure out in his mind and get a grip on like this um, subjective idealism. And he creates the story to help him work through that. And like other writers who are sort of like that, like Kafka... And like Voltaire and like Huxley, they do the same thing. Like the the nut of the story that they're writing is a philosophical issue or conundrum that they're trying to understand. Yeah. I don't want to say by creating this world without nouns, what Borges essentially does is create a world in which all Western philosophy is impossible and irrelevant. None of it can function. There's no deductive or ontological reasoning you can't do like a priori stuff because there's just, there's no nouns. I think therefore I am is irrelevant because I is not a thing in, and thing is not a thing in Talone. Right. But these are issues. Think, it's like thinking, therefore thinking, which is like meaningless. But I think for someone like Borges, who is an intellectual and he spends a lot of time almost in a higher intellectual plane thinking about sort of abstract concepts like this is a way for him like like you said it's hard for him to come to grips with this philosophy in this modern world that he was living in so he creates a world which makes it easier to understand or to explain these high level concepts which i think is kind of like i mean it's out there and it's hard to understand but i think he's trying to he's struggling with these questions in his mind almost like like a physicist or he, or a mathematician he's trying to solve these philosophical literary questions and the way he does it is by creating a construct where the components of the world are based on language and or lack of language mm -hmm. and also i think on, on one another sort of interesting thing is it kind of suggests rather obliquely a sort of cyclical universe because it's like our world exists as it exists to loan colonizes our world 
But at the end, he talks about translating urn burial, which, detached from context, could easily be perceived as a work similar to the Talon stuff. It's like, if you didn't have any context for our society, you'd be like, oh, what a weird piece of speculative fiction. It's a story by a dead man about how dead people treated their dead. And you can imagine, like, if this story continued on, Talon would completely supplant Earth. Let's just call it Earth. And then people would rediscover Earth literature and historical writing and become obsessed with Earth because then that would be a new weird place that's alien from Talon. Oh, these people have this thing called nouns or whatever, and they believe that stuff can exist when you're not perceiving it. How strange. And then Earth supplants Talon, but all the Talon writings remain, and then people become obsessed with that, and it just shifts back and forth on this like tide of reality. I don't know if that's important. It's just an interesting idea to think about. I think it is. I mean, when I was reading this, I was thinking a lot about, like, Philip Jose's Farmer, like, the River World series, where it's kind of like, like, they think that they're create, they're in a new world, or think that they're creating a new society, and then the twist is, you know, they're sort of reborn or whatever. But that whole concept of, like, the circular nature of, like, life and society and like you said transplanting culture or or, you know taking cultures over co-opting different things it's kind of like it becomes a sort of it's almost too big for this short story i mean it's like yeah huge yeah yeah no you're not you're not wrong i mean it takes like speculative fiction to like the next level and I can definitely see, like like I said before, this sort of influence that Borges has on modern writers and different um, styles of realism that starts to come out after, you know, after he's done writing. Sure, yeah. But I felt like the whole time I was reading, I was thinking, like, this is a world that Nate would go to. Like, he would be definitely into, like, going to this world and talking to these people and learning their language. And it's just so, it's so weird. Yeah, these ideas really, like, get in me. I I'm I find this stuff to be incredibly interesting. Um, and you know, it's, like I said, this story is, like, super up my alley. Not just the, like, weird metafiction stuff and the philosophy, but also it's, like, I was talking about references to, like, the Rosicrucians and the Bavarian Illuminati and all of this like esoteric history. It's uh it's all good stuff. It's almost like a literary conspiracy theory. Well yeah, and you can see like you were talking about his influence, but the one person you you didn't bring up that I found kind of conspicuous is Umberto Eco. Well, I have a note in here because one of the things that Echo uses in his language in his stories he talks about like semiotics mm-hmm. and that's pretty much like his research area where he has a scientist and he has written scientific works about the concepts of symbiotics, which is pretty much like what is the meaning of meaning? And it's kind of like that's another high concept philosophical issue that Echo is trying to work out in his professional life that he brings into his fictional narratives. Yeah, yeah. I thought I was surprised that you didn't bring up one that I thought for sure you would, Philip K. Dick. Oh, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely an influence, you know, on Philip K. Dick from Borges. And I think you can kind of see, like, okay, Valis. Have you ever read Valis? You haven't read a ton of Philip K. Dick, right? No. Okay, so Valis is 
uh, maybe my favorite thing he's written, and it's super weird. And one of the ideas that comes up in Valus is this, like, parasitic information and parasitic narratives and, like, the rewriting of reality and history, which I think definitely, I would assume, comes from this story. I don't know if he ever read it, but, like, his portrayal of, like, the empire that never ended and whatever, I can see a lot of, like, Ukbar and Talon in that. Yeah, I think, like, also with Dick and Borges's, they like to insert themselves into mm-hmm. the story, which is very metafiction and breaking that sort of third wall where they're either in that story as themselves or the characters that they create are stand-ins for themselves. And I think that, I mean, you see that a lot in, in like, Philip K. Dick's and his short stories and things like that, where he's also working through some philosophical issues or some emotional or, um, you know, the kind of stuff that he is going through personally in his life is reflected very much into the stories that he's writing. Yeah, I mean, Valis even goes so far as the two of the characters in it are Philip K. Dick. There's Philip and then there's Horse Lover Fat, <laughs> and there, which is like a litera- literalization of his name. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I thought. I mean, I like the story. I think that Borges likes to say or think outrageous avant-garde things, and he uses his stories as a way to communicate those. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, like a lot of times, when people are criticizing his work, is because they don't really understand the provocative things that he is saying. Yeah, I also think like going back to the oh, this whole story is a joke. It's a long setup for a, a goofy, obscure punchline. I think a lot of people don't appreciate the absurdism in his work i think they take it very much at face value and don't understand that like a lot of this is supposed to be funny a lot of this is like kind of a joke and a joke about heady philosophical concepts i think in the first manifestation of our podcast one of the books that we read was the napoleon of notting hill by gk chesterton yes and i think that chesterton also does a lot of the same literary techniques that Borges uses and I'm not quite sure how like in the literary timeline they fall against each other but I feel like Chesterton Chesterton comes first I believe he well well then he influenced Borges or yeah Chesterton absolutely comes first because Chesterton died in 1936 but I mean like that whole story the Napoleon of Notting Hill he creates this sort of absurd futuristic world where the whole premise is like what happens if like you know you could just claim to be a king and you could be a king or it had to do with like british politics and things like that but he created this whole concept of this sort of very near future alternative history where he wanted to examine british politics yeah oh absolutely and i think you also see stuff in um the man who was Thursday about like reality and unreality dreams, you know, pretending to be something and becoming that thing. Well, I also think like the, one of the books from Philip K. Dick that I did read, which is the man in the high castle mm-hmm. is exactly the same yes. thing. Yes. Nate's like, it like all like clapped together, like this steel like machine, but that's exactly it. He created this construct of what would happen if, the, like, he almost created, like, alternative history to examine this whole philosophical question about what would have happened if this happened in history and not something else. Yeah, and you also see the sort of nested layer of fiction in that. This is a fictional story, and then there's a fictional country 
that invents a fictional reality, which then cycles back and replaces the first level of reality in the story. And then you also see that in The Man in the High Castle, where it's like, we have our version of history, and he creates a fictional world with a different version of history, where they then imagine another version of history that is not ours, but is also not theirs. But I think, like, if you look at any writer who starts their writing process by saying, what if blank happened instead of blank, Mm -hmm. then they're relying on the concepts that Borges had created. And I think, like, one of the things, like, a couple of years ago, the hot bestseller, Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad, the whole premise was, what if slavery, like, what if there was an actual railroad? What if slavery exists in modern times? What if, you know, he, he used those techniques that Borges had created to think about the whole slavery and abolitionist movement as a kind of reflection on what's happening with racial issues in the United States right now. Yeah. And I felt like that kind of like opening that Borges created and then Philip K. Dick had expanded allows modern writers to take those same constructs that used to be speculative fiction and be very narrowly focused in this sort of genre bring it into mainstream literature and make it an experience that everybody can understand. Sure. So it's like, you know, if you say, oh, I can't understand Borges, he's too out there, he's too avant-garde. If you look at Colson Whitehead, who wrote a really good book that a lot of people at the time that when it came out, you know, he won numerous awards for that, made that book approachable to a lot of people. So they're relying, they're understanding the concepts that Borges had created as a literary device and it's been applied in such a sophisticated way that now everyone can understand it. Yeah. Well, I think that's like the thing that makes Borges complicated is like, I don't think his work is any more complicated than the idea of fiction in general, which is a much more complicated idea than anyone gives it credit for. Like the idea of writing a story is bonkers, if you really think about it. And all Borges really does is like, Get a little meta. Apply a couple layers of, like, the story is thinking about the idea of a story. And it highlights just how absurd and complicated the idea of fiction is. And I think people end up getting a little overwhelmed by that. Because it is something we just kind of take for granted. It's Like I said earlier, fiction is a cheat code in the universe that lets us perceive things that do not exist. I think that's a great way to sort of describe literature. And I think I like to, when I'm reading, and I read a lot of different things and I jump around, I like to sort of, in my mind, create almost like a tree. Mm -hmm. And I like to sort of connect writers and styles of writing and sort of see the influences that fold out from different writers and early, you know, different styles or literary devices that people are using And I really can see that Borges really had an influence on not just modern metafiction, but on fiction in general. Oh, yeah. Uh, Are you ready for me to make this the most dried up brain segment we've ever done? Do it. One of of my other favorite stories that I think is heavily influenced by this or by the ideas of Borges in general is The Gernsback Continuum by William Gibson, (laughs) which takes this sort of a step further and in that story the new reality that is supplanting our reality is one 
whose artifacts you can actually go and find because the Gernsback Continuum is about a dude going around and photographing these sort of, you know, futurist um, buildings and architecture from like the 30s and 40s. I don't know what the actual term is for them, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Let me, let me hold on. Futurist architecture. Okay. From the 1930s. It's about a guy going on. So it's this vision of this like space age Jetsons future that it's called the Gernsback Continuum because Hugo Gernsback, the guy the Hugo Award is named after, you know, he was the editor of like Amazing Stories and all of these like early pulpy jetpack science fiction stuff sort of came from him and the works that he published. And as the narrator becomes more and more immersed in this vision of an artificial future that never came, that future starts to overwrite his present. So it's sort of like a, it's a weird like dialing back of the concept of Ukbar where it's like, we actually did write these histories and encyclopedias and we built buildings. We created the artifacts of this world that appear in our world. And that's exactly what happens at the end of the Borges story. Mm -hmm. These artifacts start to appear in the world. But I feel like Borges is like the ultimate world builder because he actually, he created an imaginary world that actually became a real world. And it was kind of like, so he created this sort of ultimate world where just either thinking about a world or not thinking about a world, either way, you're creating a world. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's also like, he doesn't, he just builds the world. The story is about the building of the world, where it's like, you think about world building traditionally, it's like, oh, I create a world, and I invent a piece of fiction that exists in the world. Or perhaps more accurately, I create a piece of fiction set in another world, and through the fiction reveal pieces of the world. Whereas this story is, it is about the idea of building a world, and what that means, and what that does, and how that changes your relationship to reality. Yeah, I just, it's it's a great story. I mean, it's it's a lot to, like I said, unpack. But once you delve in... And it also, I think it's great because it sparks you to sort of think about these high-level concepts where you might not have time for this sort of personal reflection and me, you know meditation. So you'll be walking down the street and... Your mind is partially occupied by practical things, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking about these high-level philosophical concepts, which I think really is good for people to sort of stretch their their understanding and their level of comfort with, you know, philosophical issues. Yeah. Maybe we don't spend enough time reading philosophy or thinking or talking about philosophy in society today. No, no, we do not. We definitely need more of that. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else to say about Well, the only thing I'm going to say is um, if you put footnotes in your stories, then you are 100% in metafiction. And I think, like, I like to think of David Foster Wallace reading this story and be like, yes, I'm getting, mm-hmm. fo- I'm putting footnotes in my books now. Yeah. It's your cousin. Marvin Wallace. You know that new literary device you've been looking for? Well, listen to this. <laughs> yeah, okay, exactly. <laughs> this will really get them. Okay. Um, yeah. It's, you know what? Uh, the other thing is like reading this, it's the same effect that reading Salmon had. Because I just fairly recently read through Ficciones. And I, I haven't read this story before. So there's, a, you know, that this is like the 
probably like the 10th time I've read it. But reading it just got me so stoked and it became really hard for me not to be like, okay, well, the next, you know, all of the short stories I'm going to pick are just going to be the next stories in Ficciones because they're all so fucking good. Well, it was interesting when I was talking to people and they were saying, what are you reading for the podcast? And I said, you know, what I had selected. And when I said what you had selected, nearly every one of them said, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Or <laughs> figures or only Nate would pick that. Yeah, it's a very, very Nate story. So. Um, yeah. So speaking of world building, right? Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, a book that I had just finished, which is the, I had finished the stone sky, which was published in 2017. It's part of the broken earth series by NK Jemison. So there's three books in the series and they're all set in this world that Jemison creates where it's, the world is focused on, there's an environmental catastrophe at some point in the past and this world it's sort of like this clan like world that's surviving on this version of the earth that is that deals with the sort of climate and environmental changes that are happening and there are people who have powers to control the earth and the earth elements and then they're trying to survive in this world where the seasons are so catastrophic that they have this fifth season that almost destroys the earth every time that it happens. So the first one was the fifth season, which was in 2015. She won the Hugo Award for. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is the Obelisk Gate in 2016, which she won the Hugo Award for. So the third and final one is the Stone Sky, which she is nominated for a Hugo Award. And we won't know until after the 19th of August if she actually wins it. And if she does, she'll be the first woman to win three Hugo Awards in a row. Has anybody won three in a row? I don't think so. Yeah, because I, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head. I know like there's some people that have won two, but I think she will just in general be the first person to win three in a row. I think she's going to win it. That's my prediction. I, I 100% believe she's going to win it, which will probably jinx her and make it so she doesn't. I, I read this book. I read the first book. Mm -hmm. because I'm reading through the Hugo Awards. I read the first two books. The first book was so fantastic. I read it in one day. I just could Damn. not stop reading it. It was so good. The writing, her writing style, it's sort of, I talk about like heartbreaking. It's a, it's a dismal story. It's about a woman who's trying to survive in a dystopic future where the climate is so harsh that like the earth is actually killing people. And the tragedy of, of her family loss and her coming to grips with her powers. And so that book was so strong and emotionally compelling that I read it so quickly and I enjoyed it so much. The second one, which is sort of like the bridge story, which, ha which sort of takes the first novel and preps for the third novel. The third novel is not as strong. It's, I think it's the weakest one. Mm -hmm. because it and but it's very emotional but the action to move the story along and finish it up like when you think for a trilogy it's very slow and i felt like that's the weakest one and if she doesn't win the hugo it's because this book is the weakest of the three uh yeah so, okay that makes sense but the world that she creates is really kind of interesting because on the first level you think it's a dystopic fiction and it's about environmental change and her comment on sort of like climate and what's going on with the environment today but it's like a little bit more sophisticated than that 
So it's like a like a case-based society where people, they're called orgies. They have these power to control the environment and the earth, which is so damaged that there's all these earthquakes and seismic events going on. And the orgies have the power to change the earth to stop these quakes and to like help you know the earth recover a little bit of what like the catastrophic um climate issues that they're dealing with and then they have these things that are called stone eaters which are higher beings that are made of precious stone that you know it just gets very complicated it's very sci-fi and there's elements of fantasy in it and and there's this the dystopic fiction and then but basically it's a story about people surviving and families and culture and banding together but the earth is controlled by these giant obelisks that are like really large semi-precious um stones that float in the air and some of the origins can control them and they were originally in these sockets. And at some point in the book series, they become loose of the sockets. And they're floating around the earth. And then one of the origins, who is the the narrator for most of the story, in the third book, it starts to change narrators. She does a lot of different things with first, second, and third narration. These They start to realize that there is a way to control all of these obelisks and to fix, which eventually turns out... Now, spoiler alert, if you're reading the series and you're not finished, you might not want to listen to this part. But the reason why they have this fifth season and why there's such a cataclysmic Earth event is because at some point, the origins in the past damaged the moon. And God dang it. Everybody's always... I can't believe the origins, Piccolo, yeah. everybody... Leave the moon alone. Yeah, so they, they take it off its... Um, rotation it causes these cataclysmic earth events and they have to figure out how to fix it and that's what the third book is is they they're moving towards trying to fix the earth by realigning the moon mm-hmm. and they don't have any dragon balls to wish it back to life back no, together so no. they're kind of boned yeah but i think it's like the book is like interesting because the whole world that she built is not only like okay this is a dystopic fiction world and the environment is is destroyed and we have to live in it but it's also now we have because society has been destroyed we've reconstructed in this system where there's these different um factions and different types of people there's the origins and the um stone eaters stone eaters and then there's these traveling sort of nomadic societies that are moving within the world and they're trying to like mostly just survive and then this origin says well what if we try to do more than survive we try to fix what we did yeah my understanding of the story is it's kind of like an ecological fable it is it is and i think it's sort of a very like it's very provocative because it talks about societal roles and gender roles and sort of the fluidity of gender and the Mm -hmm. fluidity of like the power base i mean there's there's nomadic tribes where they're matriarchal and then there's you know tribes where they're patriarchal and then at, in the construct of like like what a family means there's a part where there's like a a family that's composed of of three adults and they have children and so there's kind of like what if we made society in a way that like 
helped us survive this event that we're dealing with. So that was a really interesting thing. But I think it was kind of like... Can I just say, though, that I think gender roles are probably my least favorite roles. I think number one, egg. Number two, spring. And then way down at the bottom, probably gender. I, th- I think that's wise. I think that's that's a very modern way of looking at roles, the role issue in society mm-hmm. today. I mean, I would take dinner rolls above them, and that's just like bland, puffy bread. But I think it's interesting because a lot of times, like, we talked about this a lot in the one episode where it's like, women writing science fiction, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, it's so novel. But it's like, these books are so well written and so thoughtful and so well planned and they're dynamic and they're interesting and the whole construct of like this post-apocalyptic climactic world we we could be close to that in the future but i feel like the fact that the quality of this writing is so good it kind of rejects the whole thing about like oh here's a female science fiction writer or here's a female fantasy writer like these the the author is so strong as just a writer and the books are so interesting and provocative that it sort of defeats that purpose. Yeah, we've talked about it before. It's kind of a pet issue for this podcast. Is like, you know, women have been writing science fiction since a, for as long as science, literally as long as science fiction has existed, because the first science fiction novel was written by a woman. On the pretext, on the just the outer layer of this story, it is a science fiction story. It's a fantasy story. It's a post-apocalyptic. It's dystopian. It's all the different hot words that people are talking about on literature. But I think underneath the story. It's a story about families and survival and banding together and trying to live your life in the most like sort of honest way that you can. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because I read the third book and the third book is mostly about a relationship with a mother and a daughter. Mm -hmm. And I read this book and it was very sad and there were parts that were sort of making me tear up when I was reading it because it was so emotional And then I realized after reading something about the book that it turned out that she had written the book while she was dealing with her mother who was dying of a terminal disease. Mm -hmm. And it was clearly her emotional connection to her mother she had put into this book and it was so genuine and so heartfelt that it became the story of a mother and a daughter that you could connect with. Instead of thinking of it like as a pulp science fiction novel, it became almost like a really strong emotional book that any person, even if you didn't like science fiction, you could connect to because the characters are so realistic and so honest. And she writes in such a brutal, beautiful way. I think I talked about the first novel where the opening chapter she's talking about the death of a child but it is written in a way that is so thoughtful and compelling that you're reading it and you're like connecting with the story in such an emotional way and her writing style is so sparse and so I hate to say thoughtful all the time but every word that she uses in this story is carefully selected and there is no extra frivolous adjectives or anything that you don't need to bloat the story it is 100 percent the story written in the truest kind of best way that it can be written that's a pretty ringing endorsement i mean i I loved it i loved the i mean i was a little bit disappointed in the third book and i i couldn't tell if i was disappointed because 
I didn't want that series to end. Like I had connected with the characters in such a way, you know, I was really kind of like, just almost like an adventure story. It's almost like a road story, like Cormac McCarthy, the road, like they're on this quest and you're kind of like, you, you, you want them to achieve their goal, which is to fix the climate. But then you realize that at the end, the story is over. Yeah. And like, that's it. I totally get that. So, but she creates a really complicated science fiction fantasy world but it's still relatable because it has to deal with the environment and the climate, which is something we're dealing with right now. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about it is, like, there is no shortage of science fiction, and even fantasy, I think, to a certain extent. Well, no, I'm just going to say science fiction. There is no shortage of science fiction that has, like, an ecological theme to it. But I think it's very rare that you get a work that has those themes that isn't set in, like, the future of our world. Right. That isn't set in a world that was destroyed by... Destroyed the way that we are currently destroying the world. Where where I think it's interesting to take those themes and apply it to a new, completely constructed world. Well, I think that's what's interesting about this book. Because the first two books... There, there are part... Like, she talks about schools and things like that. But there are... There's no indication that it is a modern Earth. Until you get to the third book and then you realize that they have been traveling in a destroyed version of the earth that we know oh well then never mind the thing that i was saying isn't true i i because i'd only read the first one and i don't even think i finished i think i got distracted and ended up even though it was very good i just get distracted a lot and i had assumed that it wasn't going for like a because that's a th- we talked about um when you read dream snake there's this, like, there's tons of science fiction and early science fiction that's set, that, like, is set in a fantasy world that turns out to be the future of our world. You have Dream Snake, you have all the Jack Vance dying Earth stuff, you have a bunch of Andre Norton's work, and I thought they weren't going for that, which is, like, fine, I'm okay with that. That's a grand science fiction literary tradition. But I think it's done in a way that's a little more sophisticated you're not like oh this is our earth like you know you real you realize that it's what like you know river world you realize what it is towards it mm-hmm. it's she uses components of the world that we live in now like there's a sequence where they take the train mm-hmm. and then they go to an abandoned world and you realize that they're like in a modern building well you know the first two books they're sort of nomadic and they live in um tent and they create these sort of little houses that that are temporary based on the seasons and then as the story moves on you realize that there was at one point but this is important because you need that construct to finish the story there has to be a modern world where they had technology to manipulate the moon because if they didn't then they couldn't use the magical elements that developed later on in the story to help fix the problem yeah yeah but i think as a writer you would be really interested in this sort of complex storytelling that she uses because the stories change in different time periods. But within the time frames, you know, if it's in the past, it's first person. If it's in the future, it's third person. So she uses the different sort of narrative types to sort of help you understand which time period something is happening. So like the first person actually, if it's the first person... 
then you know she's talking about the past. And if it's the third person, then you know she's talking about the future or the present. So I think that's interesting because it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't just say, okay, like chapter one, the past, and then you, she tells the story. You're, it's so fluid that you have to be aware of what type of narrator to know when the story is happening. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. I mean, there's nothing I love more than playing with perspective. That's yeah. uh, that's a favorite literary technique of mine. But I think it's it's interesting that she uses this to set the tone of the different stories. Mm-hmm. So I think that's... And even within the present and the past, the first and second and third narrator styles changes between different characters. So one section could be the past from one character's perspective and then the past from a different character's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think visually some of this stuff is really, I mean, I would love to have seen like a movie of this cause I want to see the it obelisk. Be so expensive. I want, yeah, I want to see the obelisk and then I want to see these stone eaters that are actually people that are made of precious stones. And then one of the things the origins do is they can transform things but to pay for the magic, they transform themselves into stone. And then the stone eaters... Eat them? Eat them. Nice. And that's almost like a sacrifice. It's, they're almost like spiritual beings. It's just so visually interesting that I'm sure it would be just an amazing... Who would you who'd you peg for director if you had to pick somebody? Because I have an answer. Oh, do you? Yeah. I would think Peter Jackson because it's so complicated. You would need a huge... You need you need like multiple movies just mm-hmm. to bring the first one together. You need a big boy with some big directing skills. No, my pick would be the Wachowskis. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Also, they just need to do more stuff. I'm. Why aren't they working more? I think that would be a good choice because a lot of this has to deal with themes that they are always mm-hmm. investigating, like gender and societal roles and things like that. So I think this sort of would be a good choice for them. And you really need someone who has the capacity to like put together such a large world into one story. Yeah. I and mean, I think if you look at, um, speed racer, which is, I actually think is their best film. <laughs> it's, I'm not joking. You're not joking. <laughs> they, um, they're really good at creating a really visually consistent world that is totally wild and bizarre, but still like has like a, a, a real like weight and texture to it even when it's like a candy colored psychedelic fever dream yeah but i mean i feel like this trilogy is worth reading i haven't read her other works and i probably will go back at some point and read them but i feel like this is one of the benefits of reading the hugo award list because i might not have picked up a novel like this and yeah i read her first novel the hundred thousand kingdoms which was really good but that's the only work of hers that I've read all the way through. And I want to, there's, I think there's two other, I think there's two other works in that series, but I've never gone back and read those yet. And I, the more you talk about this, the Broken Earth thing, the more I'm like, well, I got I to gotta sit down and read this. I just have so much stuff to work through. I got to clean my slate of books to read and then sit down and read these. I thought it was interesting because I was reading the last book as I was reading the Snow Queen, Joan... Vinge? I don't actually know how you're supposed to say that. But I was reading both of them at the same time, and I was like, okay, this is one concept of science fiction fantasy written by one woman in this time frame, and here's another view of it. So comparing them both together was a really 
interesting sort of juxtaposition of like that you know a sci-fi fantasy take from this period from like the 80s and then a sci-fi fantasy take because there are lots of elements in in the broken earth series that has to do with fantasy and i think it was sort of an interesting take of like two women writers writing in essentially the same genre and what came out of you know what the result for both of these authors was it was very interesting cool cool so you got anything else we need to talk about well i just wanted to okay let's talk about what we're doing next time oh yeah so so next episode we're going back to the sandman and we are going to read volume two the doll's house again this is written by neil gaiman and then we've got art by mike dringenberg malcolm jones the third chris bocciolo one of my all-time favorite artists this is an early work by his, but still very, very good. Michael Zuli, Steve Parkhouse, and then, of course, Dave McKean rocking those uh, very gothy covers. And then, just a spoiler alert for a future episode, I am reading the book Hope Never Dies, an Obama-Biden mystery by Andrew Schaefer. And it's essentially a mystery where Obama and Biden are going to solve a mystery. So it's sort of like supposed to be a cozy kind of story, but with them in it. And then, Andrew, don't roll your eyes yet, because I haven't gotten to the point that's for you to roll your eyes, which is Andrew Schaefer describes himself as a New York Times bestselling author of humorous mysteries, parodies, and more. Oh, and more. So, and he has such fine fiction. These are some of his his works. The Day of the Donald, Trump Trumps America, okay. a fictional story. Sure. Catsby, a parody of The Great Gatsby. Okay. Fifty Shades of Earl Grey. Uh, what? And then... Is that about um, Captain Picard? Getting dirty in the, in the boudoir? I, I can't read what the last one is. You wrote it! <laughs> Let me see. Oh, he teaches classes on using humor in your writing. Okay. He's a professor. Nothing's easier to teach than being funny. You can learn that in a class for sure. It reminds me, I I don't know. I mean, I'm just reading the book and it's a perfectly acceptable mystery series. It's very action-y. And I like the idea of Biden and Obama getting together and solving a mystery. And the cover is them driving like in a Trans Am. It's so good. Like, the, everything about it is, like, great. I just said, okay, so there's, my brain is exploding. Um, so the first thing I wanted to say is hearing you say the Obama and Biden, Biden mystery, it's like, it, it has the same effect on me as, like, looking at a big bowl of ice cream. Because it's like, yum, yum, I want it so bad. But also, I know it's going to hurt me. Yeah. It's going to, to, to damage my body and mind to experience just you describing it to me. Like, the president is missing was bad enough. I felt like I had to, like, go on walkabout after we talked about this. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this Biden-Obama mystery. The other thing was, now, for some reason, all I can think about is writing a fear and loathing parody where it's Obama and Biden. Well, (laughs) I think there's a market for it. But the funny thing is, is that I think this book was written as a joke. And obviously, as, as sort of, like, almost like a parody of, like mysteries and things like that and i think it's kind of like a funny take but this thing this book has exploded 
I mean, it is on the New York Times bestseller list. It is like there are reviews in the New York Times and the Washington Post. This book, which is like essentially like a joke book that you would have bought at the Barnes and Noble at Christmas time, has become like a cultural phenomenon. Like people can't get enough of this book. And I don't know if it's good marketing or the timing is perfect or, I mean, I'm sure that the writer, the author is a just a competent writer. I mean, I'm not sure. I, you know, he's not going to win the Pulitzer. I mean, the writer. Not for of, this body of work. The writer Catsby. of the great Catsby. He's got to be <laughs> a genius. Um, okay, like, so people who listen to this podcast, I, I don't think my personal politics are any secret. I'm a leftist. I'm on the far left. And I don't have any sort of love for, well, that's not necessarily true. But, like, I'm very, very critical of the sort of neoliberal democratic establishment of which Obama and Biden are kind of like major figureheads of. And so like, it's this strange feeling thinking about this creates because it's like, I understand it. This sucks now. Trump is very bad. The country's in very bad shape. And I understand this sort of wistful, romantic longing for these figures who are kind of emblematic of the not great, but definitely better status quo that existed you know two years ago but then it's also like i have no desire to see a sort of i'm sure i'm absolutely 100 percent sure that this story like romanticizes and idealizes and and sort of turns these guys into heroic figures while completely ignoring the fact that like their actions and their establishment are the reason we're in the shitty situation we are right now and it's like I understand the the impulse to take comfort in this, and then I'm also angry about it, and I'm also, like, morbidly and ironically fascinated. The, the very existence of this novel is tearing me apart. I kind of feel like I'm really getting into this genre of, like, presidential fiction. Like, I mean, I loved Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Like, <laughs> I, I could not stop reading that. Like, I just, I felt like that was just, the greatest escape. I mean, that was surprisingly well written. I don't know how well written this thing is, but I feel like yeah, you're the you're the Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter defender. <laughs> the, the Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter defender has logged on. <laughs> uh, yeah, you also got the Alienist, which yes. is like, um, yeah. Oh, I can I make a little recommendation for people that want some presidential fiction. Uh, there is a comic called Tales from the Bully Pulpit by Benito Serino, and I can't remember the name of the artist, but they're quite good. That's essentially like, it's like a time-traveling adventure story starring Teddy Roosevelt. If you wanted to read, like, Hellboy, but Teddy Roosevelt is Hellboy, they, there you go. Tales from the Bully Pulpit is right up your alley. So I'll be reading that, and then I'll give a full report. And I think it'll be an interesting sort of just, we can talk a little bit back about the president is missing. But remember when we were talking about that and I said to you, what kind of presidential fiction story would you want to like mm -hmm. see? I felt like the universe heard that and was like, they want an Obama-Biden mystery. That's what they want. <laughs> and then Andrew Shaver just immediately went to his MacBook and went to the Starbucks and cranked this thing out. Yeah, that's not what I want. I want a horny 70s Philip Jose Farmer style science fiction story about Jimmy Carter. That's what I want. I want Jimmy Carter to go to space and bone down with an alien. I think Jimmy Carter might want that too. Yeah, me and him, are, we're going to collaborate on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the president is space traveling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think that well, you could do it anyway because you know there's this whole thing where you take historical figures and you put them in places where they don't belong, and then you write novels about them. Yeah, yeah, you know, so. you got Buddy Holly is alive and well in Ganymede. It's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, do we got anything else? Because I wanted to make a recommendation. Oh, okay. I have no recommendation this week, so that's perfect. So you remember before when I was like, "Oh, are you ready for me to make this the most dried up brain episode possible?" And I brought up William Gibson. Uh huh. That's nothing compared to what's about to happen, because my recommendation is an alternate history, uh, fantasy, I guess, story by Vonda McIntyre, writer of Dream Snake, classic science fiction writer and lady, as we were talking about earlier, and it is very much like The Shape of Water, which we talked about, I believe, in the first episode. Yes. And so the moon, it's called The Moon and the Sun. It's from 1997. And the premise is that, you know, what's his face? What is his name? Yeah, so King Louis Fourteenth, the Sun King, he gets a hold of, like, the last of this race of, like, sea monsters. And he puts her in the Apollo fountain at the Palace of Versailles. And the story is about the relationship between this creature and a woman who is a member of the court and this sort of burgeoning romantic relationship that evolves between them and it explores kind of their place in society. And uh, it's really, really good. And I highly recommend it. If you like The Shape of Water, you'll probably dig this. It does some cool old history stuff and uh, it's a really good uh, speculative fiction novel written by a woman. Oh, that sounds very good. So we'll see you at The Doll's House. Yes, The Doll's House, Sandman Volume 2, Get Ready, I I think this has a lot of really good stuff in it. I think this is when the Corinthian shows up, so. Swoon. I, yeah. Well, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> he's like an avatar of murder. But okay, but that's he's fine. he's just so great. Yeah, he's pretty great. All right, spoiler. Literary swoon, not physical, not mm. emotional. No, no, no swooning. Okay. No swooning for the Corinthian. Uh, I'm not he like. He looks like David Bowie. Kind of, yeah. I think he looks more like Sting to Sting. me. Sting. Uh, what I, I mean, it's hard to tell because he doesn't have eyes. <laughs> he, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. He don't got eyes. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Spoiler alert. Stay tuned. Bye.